Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. And if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the, desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. So Isaiah um, speaks these words in God's name in chapter 58. This is a passage that we read uh, in the morning uh, as the Haftarah of, uh, in the Yom Kippur morning service. Um, and the passage uh, challenges us, and it's very striking, of course, when we read it on Yom Kippur, uh, to consider you know, the practices that we do uh, in fasting. And of course, Yom Kippur, the practices that we've been doing for the month before, uh, leading up to Rosh Hashanah and then to Yom Kippur. Um, and Isaiah has God say that actually that's not really what God wants. What God wants is that we share our bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house. So that's quite a challenge because I don't know how to do that. Um, I know how to bring a can to the can drive in the synagogue or in the school. Uh, but I don't really know how to divide my bread with the hungry so that the hungry person is no longer hungry. And that's really what this series uh, is meant to help us figure out. Um, I'll be giving a, a sort of introductory shewer tonight. Um, it's really the next two weeks as well as uh, the workshops which many of you attended tonight um, that are going to help us take this so much further. And I want to um, you all have in front of you, there's uh, flyers, new flyers, if you could each grab a copy, I hope there's enough to go around. Um, I wanna very briefly mention what's coming up the next two weeks. And I'd like to ask each of you to walk out today with at least one flyer and to put it someplace uh, where other people will see it, in your shul, in your pizza place or hamburger joint, uh, if you are in churches, in your church, um, Leave it someplace where people will see it because the next two weeks we have uh, incredible speakers who will um, teach us a lot um, and also give us some uh, instruction as to how we can try to fulfill Isaiah's <coughs> challenge. Uh, so let me take you through it very quickly. Next week um, our two workshops continue and I want to thank Karen Fleisch who has a new baby and she needed to, uh, to go home with him and um, of course David Silber. Um, and after that we have a lecture by Mark Winnie. Mark Winnie is coming to us from... Um, was it New Mexico? Is that where he's going from? Uh, he's, uh, he's an expert on food systems, on everything from the experience of the hungry individual to uh, uh, national and state level policy. Um, and he'll be um, talking about um, kind of the big picture uh, as well as the kind of microcosmic view um, of what's actually going on with hunger in America, what's working, what's not working. Um, he'll also be bringing copies of uh, one or both of his books and selling those uh, for people who are interested. I've read his uh, first book and, and really totally transformed um, the way I look at the issue of hunger. So I can't recommend Mark uh, more highly. Um, and then the following week on the 25th, we have two uh, really amazing things at 6 o'clock and it's at 6, not 6.30. Uh, instead of the workshops, we have a film called The Place at the Table. 
Um, I showed this after I watched it myself. I watched it the second time with my husband at home, and my 14-year-old daughter watched it as well. And um, it, too, is um, really a transformative event um, to see this film and to really understand quite differently what's going on um, on the level of human experience and on the level, again, of, of policy. Very challenging film and extremely well done. So I really recommend that for those who can make it here at 6, or if you want to come late, that's fine, too. Um, and then at 7.45, uh, we have a couple of really, really special people. Lizanne Finson happens to be a, a colleague of mine. Um, she uh, ran a program for 20 years in New Jersey, which really started as, as a soup kitchen and became um, uh, really an institution that brought people up from poverty and homelessness and um, helped uh, really make people self-sufficient. And she'll be coming along uh, with Pam Johnson, who um, at one point was a person who was homeless and hungry. Um, and uh, was a client of the soup kitchen and over the course of time uh, actually undertook a journey and is now the head chef of the kitchen. So they will be talking together, uh, not just about the project that they ran, but really trying to help us um, in this last session of our series, help us think about uh, very practically what we can actually do. So um, you know, spread the word. Again, please take a flyer with you and leave it someplace, and I hope you can join us uh, for the coming two weeks. Um, we, uh, in thinking about how to craft this series on hunger, uh, had to make a decision whether we're talking about world hunger, uh, whether we're talking about hunger in Israel, whether we're talking about domestic hunger, hunger in the Jewish community, hunger in the general community. Uh, we couldn't do it all, and we felt we needed to focus, so we did decide to focus on domestic hunger. Um, I want to acknowledge, of course, that there are hungry people uh, throughout around the world, and I want to specifically mention an organization that's dear to um, our hearts, which is Leket. Um, we had, I think, Elena. Uh, Elena's here. Let's stand up, Elena. Elena's here from uh, Leket. How many people know about Leket? You may get a Leket forum card. Uh, there's Leket materials outside on the literature table, um, as well as materials from several other organizations. Um, take those materials and um, learn what organizations, um, you know, what kind of work they're doing and how you might be able to get involved. So we're really appreciative uh, that our partners who are doing such good work in Israel are, are with us tonight. Um, and um, one more thing before I uh, begin this year tonight uh, is just a, a real huge thanks to, uh, to the Drisha staff. I feel like each of these Dershu series uh, is so different from the one before. It's, it's almost like um, starting something new every time, um, how we publicize it, how we frame it, who we reach out to. Um, and, and the Drisha staff does a tremendous, tremendous amount of work um, getting the word out and doing all the things down to cutting the vegetables that you are all enjoying. So thank you very much to the Bisha staff for that. So um, the author of Mr. Latin Sharim starts his book um, in a way that probably nobody should ever start a book or a shiur, but I'm actually going to start it the same way. He says, um, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. But I'm going to try to say it in a way that um, hits home. <laughs> so that's uh, what I'm going to try. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. If you walk out of here and somebody says, what did she say? You're going to be able to sum it up in a sentence, and the person's going to say, yeah, <laughs> what's new about that? Um, I think, though, that, first of all, the sources that I'm going to learn with you are um, incredibly interesting. Ariella, I left my stack of sources in my office. Can you go with them? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> You, you said I would do that, probably, and I did. So the sources are really beautiful and incredibly interesting sources. But also, um, I see 
tonight's session if I if I do it well and if you uh, give yourselves uh, along with me in this in this um, sure um, as kind of inviting us all to an exercise of religious imagination. Um, this uh, shiur is going to be about rain um, and how rain is understood in biblical texts and in rabbinic texts. And I want to offer um, you the understanding of rain that we're going to be encountering as a kind of um, a model or a framework uh, to carry with you, um, hopefully through the next couple of weeks and throughout the work that we will all go on to do um, in thinking about um, how we um, attempt to fulfill our responsibilities uh, in relation to um, issues such as hunger. So, um, thank you. Perfect timing. <laughs> little drama. It's always good to have it. Um, okay, I'll wait till they start to go around. I got one. I, I'm one. good. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have realized. <laughs> that, uh, okay. So um, the the it's um, it's stapled as if it's a Hebrew handout. So the the top the top source should say Bereshit uh, Raba. Yeah, that that's your first page. Okay. So Bereshit Raba midrashic text. Um, we're just gonna we're gonna first read just the first two lines of the source, and then later, um, a little later this evening, we're gonna get to the rest of this source. So just the first two lines of it. I'll read the Hebrew, and I'll kind of ad lib my own translation. Um, the source says, shota mitchila, yale min haaretz vishka et kol eitzagan. Sorry, vishka et kol pnei adama. The chazar b'hakadosh baruch hu shalotei haaretz shota elamil mala. Originally, the Midrash says, originally the uh, earth drank uh, in the following way. And as the earth got water in the following way, I'm quoting Genesis chapter 2, an aid, which I'll translate here as a spring, a spring would go up from the earth and water um, all of the surface of the ground. And so originally, the earth was watered uh, by means of a spring. The Chazab, bless you. And the Blessed Holy One changed his mind so that the earth would only drink from above. Now, what is this referring to? What it's referring to is the passage that you have next on your page, uh, Genesis chapter 2. This is the introduction to the second uh, account of creation. And the text tells us in verse 5, um, there was no shrub of the field yet on the land, and there was no grass of the field yet growing, because the Lord God did not had not called on the land, and there was no human being to work the earth. So there's two reasons that there's no plant life yet. One is lack of rain, and the other is that there's no human being to till the soil. Now, if we skip to verse 7, uh, we see that it says, God shaped uh, the human being from the dust of the earth. God breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the human being became a living creature. So that corresponds to one of the lacks in, chapter, in, in verse 5, right? There's no human being. 
Now, what about there's no rain? Right? God hadn't caused rain and there's no human being. Verse 7 says God makes a human being. So what would you expect verse 6 to say? God brings rain. So what does verse 6 say? Verse 6 says, And aid, an aid would go up from the land and watered all the face, all the surface, all the surface of the ground. Now, nobody actually knows what the word aid means because it only appears one other time uh, in the entire Tanakh, and that's in the book of Job, and nobody has a clue what it means there either. Um, and if anybody knows modern Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, right, aidim, right, is, is, uh, is mist or uh, water that evaporates. Um, but that modern Hebrew uh, meaning of the word uh, comes from one of really two possible understandings of what aid means in verse 6. Uh, if you look at the English translation that I have here, which is the New American Standard Bible, it's just what I got on the internet, um, it translates, a mist used to rise from the earth. Um, and that is a very common translation. An alternative translation, which I think is a much better uh, translation, is that it's not talking about a mist that would rise from the earth. And what's the idea of the mist rising from the earth is the idea that verse 6 should correspond to the fact that verse 5 told us there was no rain yet. So then verse 6 is telling us, okay, God brought rain. How the old water cycle, right? The water evaporates up from, uh, from, the, uh, from the earth, and then it comes down, precipitates and comes down um, as rain. So that's that understanding of aid. But actually, I think a much better understanding of aid is the one that I put in brackets, which is that it's talking about some kind of an upswelling of subterranean water, some sort of a spring or something like that. In other words, that verses 5 and 6 are saying God didn't yet cause rain to come, rather... Instead, there was a different way that God watered the earth in those days, right? God watered the earth through an upswelling of, uh, of subterranean waters. Uh, and rain will only come later on. Now, we could talk a lot more about that, but we won't. Let me just posit that that is, of course, the understanding. It's the second understanding that the Midrash and Bereshit Rabbah is using. The Midrash is understanding as that initially, the way the earth got its water, the way the earth drank, Shota, was... Um, from this spring, which would come up from the ground. But God changed God's mind, and God determined that from now on, the way the earth would get water would be from above. And the Midrash will go on to say, and we'll get back to this later, uh, we'll tend to answer the question, why does rain come from above, hence the title uh, of this session. But before we get to the Midrash's explanation of why God would change God's mind and determine that it's a better policy to have uh, the ground watered uh, by rain, I want to look at uh, the next text, which is Deuteronomy chapter 11. Um, because this text actually um, contrasts two different locales the land of Egypt on the one hand and the land of Canaan, the land of Israel on the other hand. Um, and it contrasts those two lands in terms of how each of those lands um, gets its water. You'll notice um, I bolded three verses and then the fourth verse, which is not bolded, uh, begins the passage that we know of as Vahayatim Shema, as the second passage uh, of Shema. So we'll keep that in mind, we'll get back to that later, but just, just to contextualize a little bit. So Deuteronomy chapter 11, says the following thing. The land which you are coming to, to possess, is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, which, meaning the land of Egypt, you sow your seed, 
and you water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Um, just a caveat, what does it mean water with your foot? So there's different hypotheses about it, uh, but the... Something which allowed the water to irrigate. Right. So, so what most people say about this, not 100% not clear, but what most people say about this is that uh, the land of Egypt was, of course, uh, essentially watered by the Nile and the tributaries of the Nile, and then irrigation channels, which would be uh, directed to different parts of your field, and that when you wanted to direct water to one or another part of your field, you would do that by opening uh, an opening in a channel or by closing it with your foot. Um, so that's uh, one hypothesis, but it certainly, uh, it certainly is referring to the fact that Egypt it gets its water from the Nile, from the river. But on the other hand, verse 11, but the land which you are crossing over to possess is different. Eretz harim uvkaot, it's a land of uh, hills and valleys. Limtar hashamayim tishtemayim, it, the land, or possibly you, be either one, but I'll translate right now as it, it, the land, will drink water um, from the rain of the heavens. Verse 12. It is a land which the Lord your God is doresh. We'll get back to that word in a minute. A land which the Lord your God uh, is doresh. Always the eyes of the Lord your God are upon it from the beginning of the year uh, through the end of the year. So what is the distinction that's being made here? The Egypt on the one hand right, gets its water from the Nile and it's irrigated by you, but on the other hand the land which you're coming to it is a land of hills and valleys, mountains and valleys, God is doresh it, God is always looking upon it and it gets watered by rain. What is the distinction that the passage is drawing? What's the significance, according to this passage, of, you know, of the difference between being irrigated from a river or getting uh, irrigated or getting water from the heavens? Yeah. Well, Freedom. this thought is not original with me, but <coughs> uh, the, the, the water from the ground, it seems, unless it's a really, really dry year, that it's always there. You don't have to ask God for it. It's just there. Whereas with the rain, you, you have much more a sense of being dependent on God for it to rain. Okay, great. So rain, right? Rain might come, or it might, or it might not come, which is of course the theme of the Vehayayim Shema, right? The passage uh, that continues, right? If you do what I say, right, then uh, there will be rain. But verse seventeen, right? If you don't. Verse 17, God will be angry with you. God will close up the heavens below Yamatai. There will not be rain. Um, so you're dependent on God. And also, for one reason or another, which the passage goes on to explain, it may not come or it may come. Right. Okay. What else? Yeah. I don't know if this is where you want to go, but it occurs to me that uh, the land of Egypt, of trying is a plant country. The Torah goes out of its way to contrast the land of Canaan that you're going to be going to has mountains and valleys. Okay. In other words, different levels. Yeah. Egypt gets its water from its own level. It's it's at the same flat level. Okay. As a source of water. Okay. But but the land of Canaan, land of Israel, is not. It has peaks and valleys. Okay. And perhaps therefore the water also is able 
is necessary to come from different levels. It's okay. Come, it's at so many different levels, so it can't each of this flat. So the water right. comes to the same Right. So if anybody anybody here ever learned the beginning of Moe Katan? I so, just started to do that. Amazing. I signed up with it. Okay. And I want to tell it that it was taken, so I had to take more cuts. So here's the problem. You, when you start more cuts, I'm like, you, you, for those who don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine, because most people have no clue what the story meant. It talks about beta bal and beta shlachim. And we, urbanites, right, have no clue what that's talking about. Beta bal and beta shlachim, you have to read some commentary, and you still don't really know, right, Till you actually go someplace in Israel where they show you kind of primitive uh, agriculture, and all of a sudden it makes sense. Beta bal. Baal was Baal. What is yeah. yeah, right. It's when the Baal was the god of what? But what? 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 What was Baal the god of? So storm god, right? So Beta Baal actually. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that we're using our voters or our term, right? But Beta Baal right, uh, is a, is a, is land which uh, is dependent on rain, um, whereas Beta Shlachin is land which you can irrigate. Beta Baal will always not. Uh, 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 something that's elevated will always be a beta ball. You can't irrigate up the mountain. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the clouds could go beyond and then bring somewhere else instead of here. Ah, interesting. Okay, that may be true. <laughs> that may be true. That when you have hills and valleys, sometimes it may get to you and sometimes not. But the point also is that if you have mountains, you can't actually just rely on irrigation. <laughs> you need uh, the rain to come down. Okay, what else are we seeing here? Yeah. I mean, in a more um, metaphorical way, like yeah. a ship could represent kind of the ground, like this kind of profane sitting world, mm -hmm. like the waters on the ground, the earth. Mm -hmm. and whereas going into the promised land, it's more like spiritual, heavenly, and so we are nourished from above. Okay, so that's says, right, that what nourishes us is coming from elsewhere, right? It's not what's already here, right? It's coming from elsewhere, it's coming from something that we, you know, associate with the divine, right? It's not our realm, it's the realm of the divine. Okay, what else? Yeah. Oh, sorry, this, either of you. <laughs> Don't fight. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we're supposed to think of the less desirable of the two. You know, Egypt is that bad place where we were, and God's taking us out of there to a better place. But it's a little counterintuitive because Egypt has this natural, constant source of water. Mm -hmm. And in Israel, it seems like it's not so clear that it's always going to be there, and it's a little bit, the topography is a little different. And so there's sort of an, an irony in the contrast. And usually, when we talk about how that, true, everything's right, the place that you left. And, and you don't ever want to go back there, and you know you basically right. But but of, but of course, as we know, both from Sefer Breshit and from uh, ancient history, right? Egypt is the breadbasket of the ancient yeah, world, and in Sefer Breshit, where do they always go when there's a famine? Right, they go to Egypt because yeah. the fact of the matter is the contrast sense is not between an easy place to live and a hard place to live. Actually, it is between an easy place to live and a hard place to live. The easy place to live is the land of Egypt. The hard place to live is the land of Israel. And the reason it's a hard place to live is what? Right? Why is it a harder place to live? Because the water is iffy and... Exactly, right. It's because the water is iffy, right? And within the theology of the text, the water is iffy because, verse 12, right? it's a land which God is checking into. How do you understand do race here, by the way? Like, if you had to translate it. Sorry? Seeking prayer. 
Okay, seeking prayer. What else? How else could you translate Doresh? Sorry? To demand. Okay, how else could you translate Doresh? To search. Okay, one second. I just want, what else? Doresh, Drisha, Dirishu, yeah. Okay, how else? In this in this context, if you had to just you're translating, you're not gonna right, you're doing the new American Upper West Side Bible translation. You have to, you know, just translate verse twelve. A land which Ah, so this is interesting. Look at the uh, translation that I have here, which again is totally random. It happens to be the New American Standard Bible because that's what I found on the internet first. Translates here, a land for which the Lord your God cares. Cares. Now that's really interesting because I think the race here does have this whole set of nuances. And on the one hand, there's care, right? God's checking into it because God cares about it. And on the other hand, right, the flip side of caring, as every parent has tried to convince their recalcitrant teenager, the flip side of caring is, no, you can't stay out till two in the morning. Oh, the other kids allow them to. I don't care about the other kids. I care about you. Right? So Doresh Hotel really has both those things. This is a land that God cares about, which means, yes, that God nourishes it by giving God's life-giving waters. And at the same time, it means that God's Doresh in the sense of uh, the juridical sense that we know from elsewhere in Sefer Dvarim, Drisha V'chakira, V'darashta V'chakata Hetev. You investigate it. Right? There's a kind of forensic sense. God is inquiring. God is checking into things. God says, did you come home on time? If not, you're grounded for a week, right? God is checking it out. And again, that leads into the Vahayam Shemal passage that continues. God's checking it out. And if God doesn't like what God sees, and God's eyes are on it all the time. Is this the, the elf on the shelf? Is this, is this place to do it? You guys don't know about the elf on the shelf? No, no, no. Nobody here knows about the elf on the shelf? No. It was also on the... Tell us about the elf on the shelf. I don't know if I answered my job. It's like a little elf that's on the shelf creating games. And I think it's like, does it watch you over to make sure that you're doing well? Yeah, it's, it's this really, I, I don't know who, any child psychologists in the room? I don't know who invented this idea, but it's for like kids who celebrate Christmas and like the month or so before Christmas, oh. a parent, and this elf is essentially like watching what you do to tell Santa whether you've been good. And I think like it's electrical and it looks around us. I mean, it's an incredibly creepy idea. But that's right. This is God always watching, right? So it's not about which is the easier place to live. That's hands down. The easier place to live is Egypt, right? Uh, because the land of Canaan might not get rain. Um, and at the end of the day, it actually depends on you. Now, by the way, this uh, distinction between, uh, you know, this idea of Egypt being kind of a nice place to live um, comes up not only in the fact that our patriarchs keep going down to Egypt when there's a famine, but um, in, in Genesis 13, right when Abraham um, has come back from the land of, of Mitzrayim and he and Lot are separating, uh, and then Lot uh, is told to choose where he wants to go, and Lot uh, decides, this is uh, chapter 13, verse 10, for those who have a Hamash or whatever, um, lifts up his eyes and he sees the Jordan Valley that it is mashkeh, it's all watered, right? Um, why is the Jordan Valley mashkeh? Why is Because it's got, right, <laughs> for the same reason that Egypt is, right? Because it's right by, uh, by the river, right? And it says, um, and this was before God destroyed Stone and Amora, which the next verse tells us uh, is a very, very, very bad place indeed. 
Now, actually, verse 13 tells us that. So the verse anticipates that God, that God is going to destroy Stom and Amorah because the people are ra'im v'chata'im l'ashem oh, They're very, very evil and they're sinful. Um, so he, he lifts up his eyes and he sees this incredibly fertile place. And then it says, Kigam Hashem ke'eretz mitzvayim. It's like the garden of the Lord, which, of course, brings us back to Eden, right? The place where there was an aid, not rain, right? Ke'eretz mitzvayim, just like the land of Egypt. So the land of Egypt is being compared to the area of stone where people can be as bad as they want and it's still going to be nice and green. But that's not true uh, of the land of Canaan. So just summing up, and we'll get back to this uh, passage in, in Devarim chapter 11 um, a little later, but just summing up, the, the contrast that we started with uh, that Rashid Rabba points to uh, and that already uh, appears in Genesis chapter 2 is the contrast between living in a world in which the water is assured, in which it's always there, and living in a world in which it might come, it might not come, uh, a world in which when it comes, it comes from the heavens, um, and a world uh, in which the very coming or not coming of rain signifies that God is looking down on you, looking down in care, and at the same time looking down in demands. That's the contrast that's being offered here uh, in the book of Devarim. So I want to move from that, and again, we'll get back to that um, a, a bit later on, um, but I want to move from that to looking at a couple of rabbinic texts about um, what actually makes the rain not come. Because an interesting thing happens here, in, in Devarim chapter 11, what makes the rain not come? Right, we say this twice a day, right? What makes the rain not come? Right, so give us a chapter and verse here, chapter 11, verse 16, right? He shamulachem, pen yiftelavachem, satem babadatem, elohim achrim, yiftelavachem, right? Watch out, beware, right? That you're reading from the English here, your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them or God's going to be angry at you, and God will shut up the heavens, and there will not be rain. Okay, so the not listening, right, right, if you listen to my mitzvot, then, verse 14, I will give rain, but if you do something else, I will shut up the heavens, and thus, thus something else that is pointed to here specifically, we might imagine it's all mitzvot, and probably the implication is that it is, but the thing that is highlighted here is idol worship, idolatry. I want to look very briefly at two texts, one from the uh, Talmud of Eretz Yisrael and one from the Babylonian Talmud, um, that gives a slightly different account of what, on account of what it might be that the rains are ne'etzarim, or stopped up, again using that word, ba'atzar etashalim, stop up the heavens. Okay, so on the bottom of the same page you have um, the, uh, a passage from the Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, the third chapter of Tractate Ta'anit, which is um, great chapter, um, mostly about rain and what happens with the lack of rain. And the passage says the following thing. It says, On account of four uh, sins, the rain is stopped up or withheld. But the sin of idolatry, uh, and uh, those who engage in illicit sexual relationships, and those who spill blood, and those who pledge in public, but do not give. Now, what do you notice about this list? Does it sound familiar to you? Does part of it sound familiar? 
Yes, the top three are the three, if we can say this in Jewish context, the three cardinal sins, right? The big three, right? Avodah Zarah, Gilei Arayot, and Shvichut Damim, right? Those are the three things that you need to be killed rather than violate, right? Those are the three biggies. So if you're going to choose terrible sins on account of which God might stop the rain, this would be a kind of a natural list. And all of a sudden you tap one more thing on. So when you tap one more thing on to the big three, <coughs> that would suggest to me that what you're really doing is saying, yeah, yeah, we know about the big three. Now here's what it's, what's really bad, right? And what's really terrible? What is it? People who don't write checks. People who don't write. So go on, guys, and write that check that you uh, pledged to whoever you pledged. Exactly. You, you pledged charity, and you didn't pay up. On account of that, rain doesn't come. Now, if you turn to the next page, yeah, I know. I, I can see you, Jay, just calling up and saying, <laughs> or anybody else, or Grisha for that matter. Uh, is there another handout we can? Okay, thank you. Now, if you look at the top of the next page, this is the Talmud Bavli equivalent of that passage, and here there's, it's an interesting passage. We're not going to read through, through the whole thing, but if you sort of count the underlying things, you can see that there's seven things with one underline, and um, two things with two under with a double underline. Do you see that? Where it says Babylonian Talmud Tanit seven B eight to eight B. Yeah. yeah, okay. So this is actually, um, this is extracted from the course of a, of a whole page and a half uh, of Talmud. And over the course of that page and a half, several sages come along and say, rain is withheld because of such and such. Rain is withheld because of such and such. And actually, there are seven of those, which is just a, a kind of a nice literary uh, number. And then twice they say, rain falls in such and such situation. So in any event, if you just want to kind of scan them, we're not going to read through all of them, I think what, what you'd notice is that most of the uh, things here uh, to which the stopping up of rain uh, is attributed, um, actually, you don't have those big three at all. You don't have idolatry, you don't have murder, you don't have illicit sexual relationships. You have other kinds of misdeeds, many of which, not all of which, are kind of ben adam l'chavero, right, a kind of interpersonal uh, misdeeds, and I want to uh, point to two of them. One is the very last one. Rabbi Yochanan says, "In Hakshamim Atzorim Ela, right, that rain is only stopped up uh, on account of people who pledge charity in public and do not give." This is the same teaching we just saw in the Talmud of Eretz Yisrael. And then, if you look at the third line, Rav Chista, Rav Chista says, "Well, rain is only stopped up on account of those <coughs> who neglect." Trumot and Masrot. Right? Trumot are uh, the gifts to the priests, and Masrot um, are the gifts to the tithes that go to the Levites and to the poor. So these are two statements by rabbis that suggest that rain is stopped up when you don't give what you're supposed to give, when you don't give the staka that you have committed yourself to giving, or when you don't give the agricultural gifts that the Torah uh, requires you to give. So this is interesting, right? Because both of these texts um, are kind of um, prioritizing uh, in relation to rain, um, a kind of sin or failure to fulfill your obligation, very different, hold on one second, very different from what's emphasized uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is not Avodah Zarah, it's not Avodah Zarah plus, right? This is, you fail to give the charity that you were supposed to give. Yeah, Frida. I'm just curious, it says, all of them say rain only 
falls or rain only is without. Yeah. Why do they all really think that it's only their reason and not the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think it's it's a kind of rhetorical uh -huh. uh, advice, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, right. Rain is never stopped unless <coughs> means you know I really want to. That's my sense. I yeah. But that's interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> so that's very, very interesting. Okay, so that's very interesting. First of all, some of these, um, some of these rabbis are Babylonian, some are from the land of Israel. Um, secondly, as you saw, the Talmud of the land of Israel says a very similar thing. And thirdly, interestingly, you're quite right, that the Bavli is well aware that Bavel, right, Iraq, uh, is much more like uh, Egypt or Eden. Actually, it's probably where yeah, Eden yeah. is imagined to be, right? Yeah. Uh, if you think back at chapter two of Genesis, right, you have the the rivers that come out of this upswelling from the uh, from the earth, and one is um, the Prat, and one is the Chidek, or the Tigris and the Euphrates, right? So Babel is is uh, you know has the, the fertile crescent. Um, so the Bavli is well aware that Babel is. Um, much more similar to Mitzrayim, and they do not see that as a very good thing. They see that as a very useful thing, right? It's very convenient. Um, you have Palestinian sages, you know, visiting Babel and saying, wow, there's so many dates here. If I lived here, I could learn so much Torah, and then they're up all night with terrible stomach aches because they eat too many dates. Um, <laughs> but so you have passages. So they're well aware that, um, that uh, they have a much easier time with the fertility of the ground. Uh, than the land of Israel, which is interesting. On the other hand, to me, there's quite a consistency here between the Babylonian Talmud and the Talmud of Eretz Israel in terms of this. Neither of them, they're not identical, but you know, both of them are moving from a kind of, you know, absolute highlighting of Avodah Zarah to either adding on the idea of not fulfilling your pledges or really kind of neglecting Avodah Zarah completely and moving toward uh, you know, misappropriating what's not yours or not sharing what you ought to be sharing. So, um, so that's that's my take on it. But it's a it's an important point. Okay, um, I want to move to the the next passage here. Um, the Masechet um, Taanit. Uh, anybody here raise your hand if you've learned either Mishnah or Gemara of Taanit at all? So, so, right now, okay. So, so, okay. So, in the first chapter, in the first chapter, it talks about um, what happens if, over the course of the beginning of the year, when the beginning of the rainy season, rain doesn't come, and at different points in time, um, there begin to be these series of fasts. And before the community fast, uh, there's a point in time much earlier where yichidim individuals fast, and the question is, who are these yichidim? So actually, the Babylonian Talmud and the Talmud of Eretz Israel have different interpretations of who these individuals are. Um, so this is the Talmud Yerushalmi here, and it says, who are the Yechidim? Uh, the Yechidim are the people uh, who are appointed stewards of the community. Mitmanim pranasim al-hatsibur. The stewards of the community. And the Gemara is kind of puzzled by this, and says, mikivan shavu mitmaneh pranas al-hatsibur hu mitpalel v'na'aneh? Really, because somebody is appointed the steward of a community, he has the power to pray and be listened to, and, be, and his prayers are going to be responded to. Like, what makes just because you know somebody is the head of the city council does that make him so righteous? Ella, the text says, but rather, um, 
if, right, if he's a person who has been appointed a steward of the community and is found to be ne'eman, he's found to be trustworthy, he's found to be faithful to his task, then he is worthy of praying and being responded to. And then the Gemara tells a story. It says, Chad Barnash, a certain individual, Havamapik Masua Kitiknan, right, was um, set aside his tithes um, as they're supposed to be. And he properly separated and presumably gave off his tithes. Amarle Rabbi Mana, so Rabbi Mana said to him, Kum, get up and say, Biarti Hakodesh Min Habait. Get up and recite. <laughs> the following pasuk. We'll read what the pasuk is in a second, but let me just uh, explain. And what's happening is that Rimana is saying, you know, we need somebody to pray for rain, and because you are a person who correctly set aside your tithes, you are the person who can say this prayer. And notice, once again, we have this idea of the tithes, right? Giving the gifts to the poor that you're supposed to give. Right? That, as we saw at the end of the Passage just above, Rabbi Yochanan says, right, rain is stopped uh, for people because of people who don't give the stuff that they're supposed to give. And Rav Chist on the third line, right, rain is stopped on account of people who don't give the proper tithes. So here's a guy who did give the proper tithes. So Rabbi Yochanan says, you get up and you're the one who should pray. Now, what prayer is he referring to? He says, say the following words, and these words are going to be the, the substance of the man's prayer. So what are these words? Bi'arti ha'kodesh min It's all here for you, right here and as well on the top of the next page. So what, what is it? What is this passage that he's supposed to say? Yeah. Right. So the the things specifically are the tithes, right? This is Deuteronomy twenty six has first it, it sort of has two recitations in it, right? The the first recitation earlier in Deuteronomy twenty six uh, is what we call mikvah Kurim. Right, the recitation that a person would say when that person would bring their first fruits to the temple. And that begins, which we say and explicate at the Seder, right? And right after that, um, the Torah gives another recitation, which is the recitation that you are to say when you remove the tithes from your house. So you've set aside these tithes, and now um, you distribute them. So verse 12 says, right, when you have finished... Um, tithing all of your tithes. You should give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, and they shall eat in your gates, and they shall be satisfied. Okay, so that's who you give the tithes to. And then, verse 13, and then you declare, you make a declaration, this is called vidui maaser in a bit text, you make a confession, you make a declaration about your act of tithing before God. And you say, min habayit. 
I've removed the sacred portion from my house, and I've given it to the Levite and to the stranger and to the orphan and to the widow. I've done exactly what you asked me to do. And then skipping to verse 15, this is the prayer part of it. <laughs> Look down from your holy habitation, from the heavens. Look down from your holy habitation and bless your people Israel and the land which you gave us as you swore to our forefathers a land flowing with milk and honey. So looking back at the text that we read uh, a minute ago, right, this person, Rabbi Mana turns to the person who has correctly uh, given his tithes, and he says, get up and say, <coughs> what he means is, say the prayer that a person, according to the Torah, can say when that person has given their tithes. And the prayer, again, is in verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation and bless your people, one second, bless your people and the land which you gave us. Okay, so two points before I uh, ask you to, to share your thoughts. Two points. Number one, um, an, another text that we just saw uh, in the Yerushalmi that emphasizes that the person who merits the rain coming down is the person uh, who gives the tithes. Simply the flip side of why would rain ever not come because people haven't given their tithes or people haven't given staka. And secondly, uh, that the, the the text that the person is to say in prayer right is not it's from Esrei right but look down from your heavenly abode right and bless your people and the land uh, which you gave to us and what I want to do after you speak is ask what what that resonates with right this verse Hashkifa mi ma'on yes. That's what I say. It also is public prayers. They make this public that they're going to be giving these prayers to mm -hmm. the Right. Yes, yes. Right. Okay, so what do you make of this hashkifamimon What is that? Does that sound familiar? Look down from your heavenly holy habitation from heaven. Yeah. Yes, and what does God do on stone? To stone. Yeah, what's the verb? Well, Yes, exactly, right? God is mamtir on stone. So that's very interesting, right? Because what, what's interesting, if you go back, uh, if you go back to um, that first source that we looked at, looked at in Genesis chapter 2, right? we saw that the source on the one hand says, well, God hasn't brought rain yet. Lohim tir, God hasn't rained down yet. Chapter 2, verse 5 on the first page. And on the other hand, so then you expect that it's going to say, now God brought rain, so there could be plant life. But instead it says that an aid came up from the ground. Again, that's what Rishi Rob is trying to deal with. What? Rain? Aid? How did that change? How come in Eden there was this aid, and later there was this rain? Now, Kasuto, famous uh, Bible scholar, <coughs> Kasuto has a very interesting interpretation here, which I think is absolutely correct. What Kasuto says is that 
chapter 2, verse 5, again, looking at the first page, chapter 2, verse 5 is anticipating something that's going to be happening later on. Like this is describing uh, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, are describing the world of Eden, the world that we had in Gan Eden. But verse 5, which introduces those verses, is actually anticipating the world as it's going to be outside of Eden. Mm -hmm. And what Kasudo says is that the world of Eden, and now I'll kind of use my formulation, not his, the world of Eden, as um, Suri said before about Egypt, sounds like a pretty good place to live, right? After all, the water's just there. You know, Adam and Eve, they sort of walk through the garden and they can pluck fruit anytime they want. They don't have to work very hard. They have to, so all they need to do is listen to one little command, which they fail to do. But uh, it's really not so bad because the, the water's always there. But the world after Eden is a different kind of a place. The world after Eden is the world that people enter into at the moment that they are knowers of good and evil, which means at the moment that they become human beings who can make autonomous choices and reign here, the reign anticipated, the matar anticipated in verse 5, um, is the way God will respond to those choices in the post-Edenic world. In other words, the contrast here between verses 5 and 6 is kind of very similar right, to um, the contrast that we saw in Deuteronomy 11 between Israel and the land of Egypt. Right? Matar will be rain, right? being susceptible to having or not having rain, will be the situation into which you are thrust when you become a human being who is enjoined to make choices. Now, getting back to Ezra's point, what's very interesting about that is that what is the very first time the word matar, or the verse lehamtir, uh, is used in a narrative uh, in the Chumash? Mm -hmm. You should know. It's the last time I saw you was. When's the last time we saw each other? Thanksgiving weekend? Movie? Ah, yes. Yeah, that's right. Well, it wasn't Pachanoff, but it was the Noah movie. That's right. It's in the story of Noah, right? God is uh, Mumtir, the flood. Okay, the second one is what Ezra said. God is Mumtir. What? Too much water. Too much it's water. Blood. That's right. The flood oh, is matar of judgment. It Too destroys. Right? The second time is stone, which is matar of judgment. It destroys. And the third time is? What's the third time we have a story where there's where God is mumty or something? The hail? Yeah, right? The 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 plague of hail where God is mumty or something that destroys. So what's very interesting is that the matar, kilohim tira Hashem alokim, right, Pesudo's point is that rain, right, and whether it's rain or something that's rained down, right, could be hailstones, right, but say that's rained down from the heavens, is an instrument of judgment. And in fact, in the narratives of the Chumash, it's almost always, and certainly the first three times it happens, it's an instrument of negative judgment, right? It's not life-giving, but it's life-destroying. Uh, the fourth time is, in fact, life-giving, and the fourth time is... The fourth narrative in the Chumash where there's some God rains something down. It's the man, right? It's the man. Uh, there's also quite an element of judgment in that story as well, by the way. But that's, that's a separate thing. So, so it is interesting that what Ezra is pointing to is that Hashkifamim Om Kadshacha in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 4, 15, Hashkifa might have within it an element of judgment. It could be negative judgment, as in the story uh, of Stone, 
Or here, it could be positive. Look down, God, and notice I've done exactly what you asked me to do. I've given my tithes to the poor and to the widow and to the orphan and to the stranger. Look down and notice that and bless. Okay, so there's an element of judgment is what Ezra's picking up on. What else? Where else do we see looking down? Yeah? Can you say something else? Sure. So it's on Pharaoh, in the surrounding culture, a lot of times the person in charge is deciding about who gets the water, whether it's the irrigation. So if someone of this is, like, if a person in the old, in the system where they have irrigation, if a person is salt fish and they're not eating the they might change the irrigation. Ah, we'll get to that. That's very important. Hold on to that. What's your name? Ruth. Ruth? Okay, hold on to that, because we're going to see a reference to exactly that in a second, okay? Where else have we seen in the text we've read tonight, looking down? Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven. But where else have we seen it? Tonight. Elf on the shelf. So you got so distracted with the elf on the shelf, you forgot about looking down. Deuteronomy 11 on the second page, right? Deuteronomy 11, verse 12. It's a land which God is doresh. Always the eyes of the Lord your God are upon it. God is always looking down. So here again, you have the notion that rain, right, signifies God looking down and looking down in positive judgment right, that you have done what you're supposed to do, and therefore that God will give you more of that blessing which you have shared, right? That's why Rabbi Mana says to this gentleman who has, who has separated his tithes, you can say, and we know that God will listen to your prayer because, continues, look down, notice what we've done, and bless your people and your land, right? rain down your blessings so that we can continue to give the tithes and share your blessing. Um, okay, so let's let's pause all this for a minute. And I want to go back to the source that we started with. Um, the source that we started with made an observation. And the observation was that originally, back at the time of the creation, back in Eden, um, the earth drank from this aid, right, from this subterranean upswelling of water, and God changed God's mind. So that's a really not good idea. Now I'm going to do things differently from now on, and I'm going to make sure that the uh, land drinks from above. Again, referencing verses 5 and 6 of Genesis 2. And now the source, the first source, Gracious Rabbah, um, offers four explanations for why God changed God's mind. Okay, Rav On account of four things, God changed God's mind, deciding that the earth from now on would only drink from above. And here are the four things. Number one, Mipne Ba'alei Zroa. Ruth, that's your point. Actually, we'll get to that. 
Number two, bishvil hadiach tlalim ra'im. Number three, sheyeh hagavoa shotek kenamuch. And number four, sheyehu hakol tolim enehem klape mala. Hadahu dechtiv lasum shvalim lamarom. Okay, so number one is on account of strong men. It's strong, you think of Popeye, like Bale Zroa, right? On account of strong men, Freshit Rabba, right? On account of strong men. Number two, in order to cleanse bad dews. Number three, in order that the high might drink like the low. And number four, so that everybody uh, would direct their eyes upward. As it says, quoting the book of Job, Lasum Shfalim Lamarom, which they're understanding here as um, so that the those below might look upwards. There might be another interpretation of that as well. And the next verse, which is not quoted here, uh, is Hanoten Matar Right, that God uh, gives Matar, God gives rain on the surface of the earth um, and sends forth water um, on the fields. Okay, so let's think about these four um, these four reasons. Okay, I'm, I actually don't want to talk right now about the second one, which is, is nice, I think, especially in our contemporary uh, world. I think it's the idea that through this water cycle, right, it, it actually purifies the water and you get you get pure water as opposed to rancid uh, water. But I want to leave that one aside and focus on the other three. What does it mean, Mipnei Balei Ruth, tell us what that means. I didn't know that, but they would have meant. Okay. Sometimes, I guess it's a type of, you know, using your strength of your reach. Yeah. You can make something that's not really and you're, and you have the strength to divert what could have gone farther. Yeah, exactly. And when rain comes through rivers or streams or channels on the earth, somebody who lives upstream can simply and that person will often be wealthier and more powerful, right, can simply divert that water to their field right. and make sure that the people who live downstream don't get much. We have this, by the way, this is... How about in the land of Israel all the time, right? What's happening to the waters of, um, of the Jordan River? Right? Where is it actually going to? Right? And who has rights to that? Um, so this is a huge issue, right? When water flows on the earth, um, when water flows on the earth, um, some people who are more powerful or more privileged can take more of that water for themselves. But you actually can't do that so easily with the rain. If it falls on my field, you can't actually uh, get it from me. So that's the first thing. The third thing, What's that talking about? That the high <coughs> might drink like the low. What does high and low mean here? Probably. Well, the hills get as much as the valley. Yeah, probably. Right, as we said before, in in a in a land that's watered through irrigation, right, those who live lower down will get more of that water, and those who live high up will not get it. But if it's getting it from the rain, the rain can fall uh, all over. Yeah. But it's not only really water. Ah, so okay. Sort of like solar energy. <laughs> 
and when you had to depend on Farrell to, um, to give you your chair or something, and you wouldn't, um, but just enough uh, to work from there's one thing, but then when you're relying on the random happen, mm -hmm. um, everybody can have something fall in their field and go right. Right, so whether Namuch necessarily means hills and valleys or whether it means other kinds of situatedness, it could mean both. I just want to point out that if you flip the page for a second back to Deuteronomy 11, you'll notice that in verse 11, remember it said, a land of hills and valleys. Right? So what's interesting to me here, right, here you have in Deuteronomy a land of hills and valleys. Here you have that the high can drink like the low. And I think what it, it, it's sort of to my mind, taking that geographical observation, right, it's really useful in a land of hills and valleys to have rain as opposed to uh, just a, a river. And here it's making it into a kind of a moral issue, right? Because the land of Israel is a land of hills and valleys, God decided, or because the world in general has hills and valleys, or people better situated and worse situated, God decided that God had better bring it from above so that God can make share, can make sure to share that thing equally, right? So it becomes not just kind of pragmatic, but a, a deeply moral um, issue. And then the the last one, um, the last one is um, so that everybody uh, literally hangs their eyes, right? Directs their eyes upward. Now that's kind of interesting to me, right? So that everybody directs their eyes upward because if we see this text as being in conversation with the Deuteronomy 11 text, right? Which is the text that really kind of tries to spell out what's different about rain versus getting your water from the earth. Um, the Deuteronomy 11 text talked about God's eyes, right? That rain signifies that God is always looking down. And this text is kind of doing the converse of that. Right? That rain is something which causes us to put our eyes above. And I think what's interesting about that is that when you have this text in conversation with the Deuteronomy 11 text, you kind of have a reciprocal looking. Right? That what happens with rain, and it, it's kind of, you know, when you think about rain, one interesting thing about it, whatever your theology is, that I, you, I certainly feel this way with snow, because you can kind of hold it in your hand. You know, that, that you're holding something, right, which, which came from the heavens. You know, I mean, rain is actually something that bridges um, the heavens and the earth. Now, the Hakol Tolim here can mean, especially in, in, in when you say Tolim, right, something hanging on, right? On the one hand, it signifies dependency, right? Everybody is looking upwards, sort of independency, right? You, as somebody said before, in looking at the Deuteronomy text, right, if rain comes from above, you realize that you're dependent on that coming down. You're dependent on God. But in addition, it's almost like a revelation, right? That rain is a revelatory thing. When you see, when, when, when you anticipate rain coming down, you look upward. And at the same time, God's kind of looking downward at you. It's this kind of reciprocal gaze, right? God's looking down at you, and you um, are looking up at God. And what I th where I think that takes us is kind of to, to, to a next step, which also kind of brings us back um, to the... Deuteronomy 26 source about the uh, declaration when you bring your tithes, which is that I think one of the things that's going on here um, is this notion that um, God's looking down at us to see how are we doing. And the how are we doing, according to rabbinic text, really means how are we doing in distributing the blessings that we have. 
But at the same time, we're looking upward. Now, looking upward, again, is dependency. It's noticing God's, um, you know, uh, gift to us. But looking up is also, I think, in this text, doing something else. Because we've already said that the whole point of rain here, right, is that God wants to make sure to rain down the water right, in a way that nobody who's more powerful or more of a bully can take control over. That God wants to rain down the water in a way that whether you're situated high or you're situated low, right, whatever your status is, whatever your privilege is, whatever your geographical location is, that you have equal access. So when we look at rain, right, when we put our eyes heavenward, meaning we're, we're saying, well, what can I, what can I understand when I look at the blessing of rain, what I can understand is that God chooses to give that blessing in a way that everybody has equal access. And therefore, what I do when I give out my tithes is simply do with the rain exactly what God's intention for the rain is, right? That the produce that grows from the rain um, needs, simply needs to be distributed or shared in such a way that manifests God's intention for the rain. And when that happens, the rain comes down, right? It, it's, it's almost an immediate, um, it's, it's not even a kind of uh, reward for, it's almost this, this kind of, um, this kind of um, you know, reciprocity, again, of you know, God sending down something that's meant to be shared and us sharing it, meaning that it comes down because that's what it's supposed to be for. Give me, give me a second. Okay, right, I want to I want to uh, move on uh, just to the the last um, passage that we're going to do, and then we can open it for for comments and questions um, for those who have any. Um, on the very last page, this is actually a, a very famous passage. It wasn't famous till about five years ago, and then I've seen it all over the place. But um, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> it's a great passage. This is from uh, Bavli to Anit. Um, there are two little stories, don't read them yet, I want to say a word about them. Um, in the third chapter of Tanit, as I mentioned before, there's, there's a lot of stories about rain. That's where the Choni stories are, for example. Um, and um, toward the end of the chapter, there's a long series of short stories um, about different sages um, who prayed for rain uh, or declared a fast when there was no rain. Um, and in each and every one of those stories, the rabbi fails to bring rain through his prayers or fasting, uh, which is extremely striking, not only because they're rabbis and great ones at that, but because, again, this is the third chapter of Masech The first two chapters are all about the prayers and the fasts that you're supposed to do when there's no rain. And then all of a sudden, chapter three, you have all these stories in the, in the Gemara uh, of people and rabbis and the less who do exactly those prayers and fasts, and it never works, not once. Not once does it work. It works after something else happens, but it never immediately works. They pray, they fast, and rain doesn't come. And in the middle of that series of stories come these two stories. So I'll read the two stories uh, together and then make a couple of comments about it. Rebbe Gazar Ta'anita Velo Atamitra. Rebbe, right? That's Rebbe Yudhanasi, right? The, the, the head rabbi of his time, a compiler of the Mishnah, decreed a fast, but rain didn't come. Ilfa, and some say it was Rabbi Ilfi, uh, went down before him. Went down uh, is the term that the Talmud uses um, to lead the prayers. Right? In those days, they didn't go up high on the bima. They actually went down to pray. Mimamakim. Uh -huh. Anybody here go to the leader minion? The leader minion? Okay, so the leader minion's official name, leader minion's a great minion in Jerusalem, its official name is Amika Debira, right, the depth of the pit. Oh, <laughs> so no. the idea is that you pray from a low place, you don't pray from a high place. Tell that to your 
um, local chazan, but in any event, so Ilfa, or some say Rabbi Ilfi, uh, went down before him to pray. Amar, this man said, Mashiv Haruach, he who brings, who, he who causes the wind to blow, Benasazika, the wind started to blow. He said, Mori Hagashem, he who causes the rain to fall, and rain came. Amarle, so Rebbe said to him, My Uvdach, what, what, what do you do? Amarle, this person said to Rebbe, Diana Bukusta Dechika, the late Bechamra Lekidusha Vabdalta, Tarachna Vatina Chamra Lekidusha Vabdalta, Umafikna Luhuide Chovataihu. He said, I live in a small village um, that's very poor, and people there don't have wine for Kiddush and Havdalah. So I, I work hard to bring them wine for Kiddush and Havdalah so that I enable them to fulfill their obligation. And then the next story, Rav, and Rav is kind of the greatest sage of his generation, uh, Rav Iklalahu Atwa, he went to a certain place, Gazarta Anita Vlo Atwa Mitra, he declared a fast, but rain didn't come. Nochit Kameh de Tzibura, so a certain uh, person uh, went down uh, to lead the prayers before him. Amar Mashiv Haruach, so the guy said the words Mashif he who causes the wind to blow, and the wind started to blow. He said, Marit Hagashem, he who causes the rain to fall, and the rain started to fall. Amarle, my Uvdach. So Rav says to him, What do you do? Amarle, Mikre Dardike Ana, Umakrina Livnea Nie Kivnea Tire, Vacholdelo Efshale, Lo Shaklina Mine Midi, Vidli Pere de Chavri, Vacholman de Pasha, Mishachtina Le Minaihu. So he said to him, I am uh, a teacher of young children. I teach children to read. And I teach uh, the children of the poor like the children of the rich. And anybody who can't afford it, I don't take any fees from him. And I have a little uh, fish pond, maybe an aquarium in the kindergarten. <laughs> a little fish pond. And whoever misbehaves, I bribe him with them. And I work things out and I appease him until he comes and reads. Maybe he gives him a job to feed the fish or something like that. He engages him uh, in that. So there's, to me, a few striking things. I mean, they're great stories, playing. So a few striking things about, about these stories. Um, one is that these guys are actually not saying the prayers to request rain. What is the prayer for rain? We want rain. Where do we say that? Well, speak up. Right. We say that later on in the Shimon Esrei, right? We say that in Bukhat Vacha. Please give us rain. Right? That's called She'ilat Kishamim, asking for rain. In the second chapter of Tani, the chapter just before this, there's a whole ritual for fast days for rain, where in addition you add six brachot to the middle of the Amidah, where you ask for rain, you ask for God's help. These guys never get to the middle bracha, because as soon as they're in the second bracha, they're in the second bracha, right? Now we know about the second bracha. The first three brachot are not bakashot, they're not requests, right? The first three brachot of the Amidah are not requests at all. They're talking about God's attributes. The second bracha is talking about God's attributes. And when we say that second bracha, we say, right? We're listing God's attributes. 
And as these people are listing God's attributes, they say, okay, God, you're very great. You bring wind. Wind starts to blow. You bring rain. Rain starts to fall. And they haven't even gotten to ask for it yet. So I want to highlight that, right? Everybody else is fasting and not only, you know, saying, but saying all these extra prayers and blowing the shofar, this whole ritual. Rain doesn't come. And these guys never get to ask. They don't get to ask. So we'll get back to that in a minute. Well, what is it that these guys are doing? What is it that they're doing? What's what's so great about what they're doing? Yeah. Well, they're not just writing checks. They're putting themselves on the line. They're making personal effort. I mean, that's part of it. I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff. Okay, they're making personal effort and also, by the way, at an expense to them. Right? No, <laughs> One's bringing wine on Tawachna. It's not easy for him, whether it's financially not easy or whether he has to travel far, we don't know. Uh, and the other guy is not just giving up on the tuition, right? He's but putting he's putting himself out there to make sure that every child, no matter how difficult, gets to learn how to read. Yeah? I think that's exactly right. I think what, what these two people do, I mean, these are kind of very not spectacular acts. Right? Right. These are acts, by the way, that people around us do all the time. Right? There are many teachers that we know who do this all the time. Anybody can do those things. Anybody can do these things. That's right. These people are not necessarily wealthy. They're not necessarily brilliant. They're not necessarily learned. We don't even know how many other mitzvahs they do. Hold on a second. Right? What we know is right that they, for whatever reason, are in a position where with effort, quite a lot of effort, they can do exactly what you're saying that they do. Right? They make sure that everybody has equal access to what it is that they can offer. It's not enough that I have it, and it's not enough that the privilege has, but everybody has it. And what I think is interesting about that is uh, what I said a minute ago, that God responds to them not when they ask. Right? They actually don't get to ask. God responds to them when God simply hears the words, right? hears the words, you're the one who brings the wind, you're the one who causes the rain to fall, and it's like God says, oh yeah, that, that's... Yeah, that's 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 what I that's what I do, and to me that's really the 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 message that we saw with this hashkifamim on kachacha min hashemayim uvarech etamcha, right? Look down from the heavens and and bless. The idea is that basically what the rain is telling us, right, is that the rain means that the way it's supposed to be and what we have the power to do uh, is to make sure that everybody has. A share of the blessing, and when we do that, the blessing naturally comes. In other words, it is God's way. What this text, I think, is telling us: it, it is in fact God's way to be Hagashem. That is the way it is. Sometimes things get in the way. Sometimes that flow of blessing gets stopped up, and it gets stopped up when something interrupts that flow. What interrupts the flow is when it doesn't flow the way it's supposed to, and we're the people actually who interrupt that flow. Right? When we keep that flow from flowing the way the rain is supposed to flow, which is to everybody, that interrupts that flow. That's what that's what closes it up. When we give those tithes and give that staka and do something much more difficult than tithing and staka, which is make sure that every child can read and everybody has the wine that they need for Kiddush and Havdalah, when we do those things, then God barely needs to be reminded, and it's, oh, yes, that's right, I, yeah, here it is. Right? That's, 
that's the way it needs to be. And again, there's, I think, that reciprocity, right? When we look up to the rain and see what the rain is asking us to do, God at the same time is looking down at us and saying, yes, that's right. That, that is what the rain is for, and, and here it is. And I think that's, that's really kind of what's being, um, what's being offered here uh, in terms of rain, that these texts are offering us really one of the most mundane things in our world, rain. It happens here all the time in Israel, part of the year, but it's one of the most mundane experiences. And the text is offering us um, a vision of that that transforms that rain into something that is uh, always potentially with us, and that um, asks us to kind of think all the time about how we um, act in the world. So I'll, let me just kind of sum up uh, with a couple of sentences and then for people who, uh, who want to stay um, you know, some time for questions. So what I, what I think these texts show is that, first of all, that rain is, is a form of revelation. It's something that's coming down from the heavens and it's something that calls upon us to look up to the heavens. That rain is a kind of encounter with God. It's a bridging of the upper and the lower worlds. That rain signifies God's presence, right? The land of Israel is a land that has rain, meaning God is there. God is noticing. God is with us in care and in demand. God's presence makes demands. God's presence also offers blessing. And God's presence enacts judgment. Okay? What is it that you're doing? What is it that you need to be doing? The blessing of rain, according to these texts, is something that we cannot control. It is something of which we can't take a greater share than what anybody else has. Um, and it's something in which God's desire to sustain everyone and all creatures um, is manifest. And therefore, the blessing of rain reminds us of our responsibility to create and sustain a world in which everybody has a share um, in those blessings. So, as I said at the beginning of this session, I didn't say anything you don't know. Oh. Um, what I'm offering is really an image, kind of an imaginative framework of when we see rain or we think about rain, uh, being reminded that rain entails us looking up and God looking down, and what does that demand of us, and what does it, what model does it offer us in terms of how we um, act in the world? And as I said before, really the 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 the, the core of this series is the next two sessions, because the next two sessions um, are going to teach us how to do that. Um, first, next week, uh, really offering us um, uh, a picture of what it is that's working out there and what it is that's not working out there. Um, and then the third week, really offering us uh, models for how we can engage in the work which we're being asked to do. So again, please, uh, if you're able to come back, uh, come back. And whether or not you're able to come back, please do take at least one of those flyers and put it someplace. Uh, where somebody else can see it. Um, if you got the emails from us, and you'll be getting another email from us, send it on. Put it on your Facebook page. Um, we think this is hugely important. Um, and I suspect that almost everybody in this room has in some way engaged with the work of hunger. Um, I want a lot of people in this room who haven't engaged with the work of hunger, as well as you all, because you all and I have much, much to learn. So thank you so much for coming. I'm here if people have. Um, your questions or comments, but I also want to let people leave um, if people want to leave. So if you want to leave, just leave kind of a little quietly and people want to stay, I'm here. So go ahead. Well, this is just a comment. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.
and say, okay, we got to pray, we got to pray for rain. So everybody comes to church. So he looks around and he says, oh, this isn't going to work. Says, what do you mean? You didn't even try yet. You didn't say anything yet. He says, nobody brought an umbrella. Uh huh. That's great. Yeah, I wish I'd make that up. That's great. That that sounds like some of the stories in Tony. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Uh, some of them. Some say, you know, you're not desperate enough. <laughs> you're praying. You're going through the motions, but you don't. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Both man and, and rain are coming from the earth. Um, and it's if God hasn't yet decided to me which creation is more important of this. The, 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 the water, the rain is important and, and because in that in that custom it's actually making it as if the function of human being is to take care of the earth. That's right. So um, I, I was thinking about the Nile look Oh, they made the Aswan Dam and they changed the whole Nile. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I mean, what human beings do, that's, I, I'm just uh, to, I, I'm thinking about climate change, I'm thinking about global warming. I mean, uh, how did we become so arrogant in a sense? <laughs> in that, you know, right. you know from, from voracious to that. Yeah. Well, you know, you're making an important point because, uh, uh, you know, I, I sort of characterized the, the creation of the human being in chapter two as, um, you know, there's a job description and nobody to fulfill it, right? Um, you know, what's what's quite clear uh, as, as the passage progresses we don't have here is, you know, God, um, God um, you know, puts the human being in the garden of to work it and, and to guard it, right? In other words, the, the human being is essential here because there can't be a world without the human being. Very different, you know, from chapter one where it sort of culminates, you know, in, in the human being. But, um, but um, you know, the story of, you know, from the time the human being reaches out and takes that one thing, just one thing <laughs> that he's not supposed to have or she's not supposed to have, uh, you know, straight through Midal Pavel and, you know, every other story in the Tanakh and the human history, um, you know, is, is a long story of, of people reaching beyond um, maybe what they should be reaching for or, or reaching for it without regard to, you know, the consequences of that. And, and to me, you know, that goes back to that first Bereshit Lava text, right? Um, that there, it, it's interesting, by the way, there's, there's, a, there's a Midrash that, um, I think it's about Midal Pavel, that the tower builders um, uh, took with them um, uh, picks, right? picks to uh, attack the heavens so that they could make the rainfall. They thought they could reach up and, and make the rain, they could control it. And there's another address that the descendants of Cain right, said, hey God, who needs your rain? Right? And there's the notion is that, that rain at the end of the day, you know, that there's, a, there's a midrash that comes up in, also in, um, in the Talmud that says that there are three keys that God doesn't hand over to anybody else. Okay? The key of childbirth, the key of resurrection of the dead, and the key of rain. And there's this notion that there's some things that a few, we control so many things. There's gotta be something that shows us the limits of human control. And that reminds us that there are limits to that. Now, of course, we live in a world where we try to control reproduction. I'm not saying that's all bad. I'm just saying, you know, where, where we start to, you know, it, encroach, you know, upon kind of even those things. I don't know if we do resurrection yet, but maybe with cloning, right? Um, 
And and then there's rain. Now maybe we try to control that too, seeding, you know, <laughs> seeding the cloud. Right? But there is the notion that those the, the core sources of life, rain and childbirth and resurrection, those core sources of life uh, are things that you know that represent a kind of a boundary uh, of human capacity. Because when those things are handed over to humans, you have the Bali's raw, you know, who take it, who 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 take what they want without without regard for the consequences for others. So I think you know I think these texts do raise hugely important points um, about not just the environment, but really about the, the place of the human being in the world and what the boundary is. Which is why I think you know within within this chapter of Tani, it never really works to pray for rain. Because if it just worked to pray for rain, then what that means is that you do control it. So you do have to pray for it. You do have to pray for it. But if you pray for it thinking that that's going to work, it never works. Because then it's, it's in your control after all. So I, I think you know, those are really key, key themes here. And again, rain kind of reminds us of that. And especially if you, if you sort of take this trajectory of Rachel Drava seriously, that you know, it used to be your control. And God said, not a good idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that over. Because that's there needs to be something that's that's not in your hands. And, yeah. Yeah. The thing is, there's control in the sense of we're going to do these rituals and we're going to fast and we're going to do all those mm -hmm. those six stuff. Mm -hmm. That's one kind of control that isn't really always going to work. You're not in control. But the stories, those two beautiful stories about the guy with the fish and the other ones. That's doing something. Exactly. That's it's not the same. It's and they're and they're not doing it to get the rain. That's okay? exactly what, what they're doing is that's they're they're functioning on this earth. Right. They're not trying to control the heavens. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna say good night to everybody, and um, I'll stay for people who still want to talk. But thank you so much for coming, and please bring your flyers. Thank you.